You have your Bibles open to Matthew 21. If you would find 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at about four verses over in 1 Peter chapter 2 and as we are studying our passage today. And as always, as you find uh, 1 Peter 2, as always, let's pause for just a few moments, having the scripture read before us, and ask once again that the Lord might help us today. Father, we bow once more before your presence. Lord, we do acknowledge you as God over all and through all, the God of all. Everything is by you and everything is through you and everything is for you. And that includes us, Lord. We have been created by you in your image to give you glory, to know you, to enjoy you, to worship you, Father, and in worshiping you, to find our greatest fulfillment, our greatest satisfaction and joy. So that that is for your glory is always for our ultimate good. We cannot praise you enough for who you are and how you have ordained your world and your creation and how you have granted and offered and secured salvation. So we love you and we praise you today. We thank you for your word as it has been read As we look to it, Father, amazingly in our own language, our own personal copies, and we, Father, look to you to hear from you today as you speak, as you work in our hearts, Lord. There's an outline, Father, as I've studied the passage, I, I come up with an outline to try as best I can to explain the passage and apply the passage to our hearts. But what gives us comfort today, Lord, is that the Spirit of God is at work here today. And you are speaking far louder than I can, far clearer than I can, and in far more many ways of applications in our hearts. I don't see every area of where we all are today But thanks be to God, you do. You know exactly what we need and exactly how this passage, Father, can soothe our hearts, challenge our hearts, grow us in the likeness of Christ, or even compel us to come to Christ. So, Father, we we just trust you today in opening your word and submitting our lives and our hearts to it, that you're going to speak and you're going to work and you're going to build your church. Help us then to respond in faith and repentance and joy and obedience and glory and worship. And we give you the praise for it all in Christ's name. Amen. So if you remember... The previous passage was the parable of of two sons. And now we have this parable followed right right on the heels of the previous one. And it's about one son. Two sons and one son. 
And there are similarities here. They're, they're both uh, agricultural in nature. There's a vineyard in both of these parables. There's an owner in both of these parables. But there's also some distinct differences as you read them. And the major, the major one, of course, is being the application of these two parables. If, you're, if you recall, uh, last week when we studied the parable of the two sons, Jesus was confronting the religious leaders, and he was doing so based on answering their question with a question, but he was confronting them because they had rejected the ministry of John the Baptist. In this parable, Jesus is going to press even further And he's going to be confronting them concerning their rejection of the son. The son of the master, meaning the rejection of Jesus, the son of God. So it's it's quite, it's one thing not to believe in the ministry of the one who is announcing the arrival of the Messiah. That's one thing. But it's quite another thing to reject the Messiah himself when he does arrive. And by word and by action and by life demonstrate that he is who he says he is. But not only to reject him as the parable tells us, but to actually kill him. To actually kill the son. In other words, in this very parable and in the explanation of it that follows, Jesus is telling these leaders exactly what they are going to do before they even decide to do it. And he not only tells them what they're going to do and the travesty of what they're going to do, but he tells them of the dire consequences of committing such a horrendous act. The gravity of their decision. They will kill the son and they will face the consequences. So Jesus really turns up the heat with this one. He puts it all on the line for them to see exactly where they stand and exactly what their actions are in truth, in reality, what they are doing, what they are proceeding, where they are headed. He explains everything to them of these dreadful actions against the Lord. The title of today's message is, what will you do with the son? We, if you would think about last week, we could say the, the question for that is, what did you do with John? And that's dangerous enough to reject the one who is announcing the arrival. But what will you do with the son? That's a whole other level. So the lesson is clear for us today as we begin to study and walk through this passage The implications of what you do with the Son are are inescapable. If you receive Christ, you, you will be made new. You will be made fit for heaven, fit for glory, fit for eternal life. However, if you reject the Son, you face the eternal judgment that follows 
rejection of the only Savior, the only Son. You can't change the outcome no matter how how hard you try and how cunning that you may scheme. As we will see, and as we've already read this morning, the chief priests and the Pharisees are not clueless about what they're doing. In fact, they have a keen understanding of what they're doing, but they're so wrapped up in themselves that they are determined to change the outcome. They are determined to to change the, the course of God's design. They are determined to do things their way. But the bottom line is rejecting the Savior is rejecting salvation. So once again, Jesus presses these religious leaders, but as he's pressing these religious leaders from considering the consequences of rejecting John the Baptist to considering the consequences of rejecting the Son, as Jesus is pressing them, the Scripture is pressing us. What, what will we do with the Son? What have we done with the Son? And how does that reflect in our lives even today and even as believers? The first thing we see then is the first section of our passage is is the parable itself, a telling parable in verses 33 through 41. I won't read the the passage again. We've we've just heard it. But the parable itself is essentially a review of, of Israel's brutal, rebellious history of rejecting the Lord and His Word and His ways. Within these few verses, Jesus essentially covers the the Old Testament and on into the New Testament Gospels. The master, of course, representing God. The tenants representing Israel's leaders and the vast majority of Israelites throughout their history. The servants then representing the Old Testament prophets. If you have been... um, charting your way, working your way through, reading through the Bible or a Bible reading plan and you've read through the Old Testament at all, you'll know that as you read through the Old Testament, when you come to a parable like this, it kind of, kind of condenses, makes a, in in, in a few verses, gives a brief summary of basically the high points of the Old Testament. Time and time again, Israel turns from the Lord throughout their history. It's just a constant back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. God blesses, they turn to the Lord. They grow comfortable, they grow easy and secure, they turn from the Lord, and on and on. They turn to other gods, they pursue lives of sin and wickedness, and time and time again, With each turn from the Lord, God sends his prophets. He sends his spokesmen to them to to warn them of judgment, to call them to repentance, to hold out the hope of salvation for that small remnant of people who still believe. And yet time and time again, the words of the Old Testament prophets, which were the words of the Lord. Remember, we we read the prophets and they, they tell the people of Israel... Thus says the Lord, 
and they give the words of the Lord to the people. And time and time again, these words fell on deaf ears and, and dull hearts. The prophets, the long line of prophets in Israel's history were ignored, were maligned, were persecuted, and were even killed. John the Baptist and Jesus himself come in this line of prophets and they are received in the same manner by the leaders of the day, maligned, ignored, persecuted, and for Christ even killed. And so the religious leaders of the New Testament kind of take on the mantle of the kings and the leaders of the Old Testament, refusing, refusing to hear the word of the Lord. The parable then states that after sending these servants to, to collect his, the master's share of the fruit, that he's leased his vineyard to these tenants, and these servants are met with harsh and brutal and murderous treatment, then the master sends his son. He sends his son. In other words, he, he comes then with his authority. He comes with his uh, presence. He comes, in essence, as coming himself. The parallel account of this parable over in Mark 12 Uh, goes a little further and says that for this master, this is his only son and this is his beloved son. Which again is, again, telling us who the son represents. As John 3.16 describes the son of God, Christ, in the same language. The beloved, the one and only son of God. So... In the parable, the master reasons, they they will respect my son. But when they see the master's son arrive, uh, surely, surely they will conclude then that their their devious plot and plan here to kind of take over the vineyard and and take it for themselves to, to rob the master of what belongs to him, what is rightfully his, and to keep it for themselves, surely they'll, they'll conclude that when the son arrives, their, their plan is not going to succeed. Surely at that point they will comply with the law, the legal agreement of their lease. But that wasn't the case, is it? That wasn't the case in this parable, and the parable is meant as a brief history of of Israel, and that wasn't the case in the history of Israel either. In the case of the history of Israel on into the day of Christ with these religious leaders, even with the coming of the Son, they would not give heed even to the law that they say that they uphold And even to the very sending of the Son of God. Instead, in the parable, they reason, if if we kill the inheritor, we'll have the inheritance. Now, the strange thing about that kind of reasoning is that they never pause to consider if they kill the son of the master. If they take the master's son and slaughter him, I wonder what the master's going to think about that. And I wonder how he's going to react. 
after sending all of these servants, after giving time and time again the opportunity to do the right thing and finally sending his son and his son being received in the same way, they never stop to consider how the master may react. And that's exactly, it's a, it's, a, it's a great description to us exactly how deceptive sin is, exactly how foolish sin is. Sin tries its, its best to convince us and, and to sway us and, and to promise us that final victory will be ours. If we choose this path of sin, this life of sin, it will be ours and, and there will be no consequence. If we finally get everyone out of our way, if get all the obstacles out of our way that's keeping us from getting what we want then we'll finally have everything we want, no consequence. It promises, sin promises, a great package, but it always fails to deliver. It never gets around to taking into account the response of the master. Sin will always seek to undermine and undervalue and and cloak the majesty and the supremacy and the holiness of God. In fact, sin will try to distort the holiness of God. Instead of its beauty, make it some type of ugly thing. Now, at this point in the parable... Jesus tells the story, and he, he leaves them with another question, right? They, now, they started all this questioning, right? They came up to Jesus and wanted to know, by what authority are you doing these things? And so Jesus is just returning and giving them some questions to consider. And, and at this point, they, they are unaware where Jesus is driving with this parable. They're just listening to the story part of it and not catching the meaning part of it. And in the story part of it, while they are quick to respond with what? Justice. These tenants, if they have taken the the master's property and, and they have leased this vineyard from the master and they have treated his servants this way, even more so if they have treated his son this way, there's no question what's going to happen to them when the master returns. In fact, they, they give a pretty good description of these tenants and of their consequences, right? These wretches, these wretches, he will put these, those wretches to a miserable death. And they will actually lose, they will actually lose the very thing that they cheated so hard to obtain. He'll give the vineyard to someone else. They give a correct answer. They've just missed the meaning. They've yet to realize they are the tenants. They are the wretches. But they'll get the point. Jesus is getting ready to help them understand in the next passage. But reading this parable, it kind of reminds us, doesn't it, of back in the Old Testament, David's encounter with Nathan the prophet. 
Remember David's story of sin and rebellion against the Lord. God has blessed him and he's king and he desires another man's wife. He takes her for himself and she becomes pregnant and trying to hide that sin. He eventually has her husband killed. And he thinks he's gotten away with it. He's failed to consider the master of the house. He's failed to stop and think, well, what's the master going to think of me doing all this? He's failed to consider that God is always watching. God always knows. So Nathan comes to him in 2 Samuel 12, and Nathan begins to tell David a parable, just like in this text, Jesus with the religious leaders. And he says, you know what? Tell me something, king. Now, there was this very rich man. He had plenty. He had all kinds of livestock. He had everything you could ever want. And he was having a large dinner and inviting, he, he was inviting many guests. There was a poor man also that lived nearby. And, and the only thing he had to himself was a little lamb. And he loved that little lamb. Well, this rich man was getting ready for his dinner, but he didn't want to bother with killing one of his lambs. So he goes and he steals the poor man's lamb, which is the only thing that he has, and he slaughters that and he feeds his guests with that lamb. Now, Nathan asked David, what do you think should happen to that guy? The Bible says David, hearing the story, he's just like the leaders, right? He's listening to the story. He's not catching the meaning. And David is angry. And he says, that man deserves to die for what he did to that poor guy. And Nathan said, you're the man. And essentially, and you're right. You do deserve to die for what you just did to poor Uriah. Interesting thing about David and Nathan, though, wonderful thing, actually, David repented. When David realized, I can't fool God, I can't cover this sin up, I can't run away from this, and I've done a horrible thing, David greatly repented. And by the way, the consequences of that sin, God forgave him, God forgave him, but the consequences of that sin followed him the rest of his life. Forgiveness, by the way, just a quick lesson. Forgiveness does not remove consequences. It removes eternal punishment, but it doesn't remove consequences. But David repents and is reconciled to the Lord. Fellowship with God, reconciled, reinstated. But that was not the response of these leaders, is it? There's a prophet standing before them, the final prophet, the great prophet, the son of God. And he's going to actually show them that they're the tenants. But they don't respond in repentance. Let's go to this next portion of the passage then. A revealing scripture in verses 42 through 44. Here's where Jesus says, now don't don't miss the meaning. You've already given the correct answer. Now don't miss the meaning that you are the tenants and that you deserve death. Therefore, by implication, repent, 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 change, turn to the Lord, let go of yourself. So Jesus takes him to Psalm 118. Have you never read in the scriptures 
Of course, that's a rhetorical question, right? Because they're, they're supposed to be the experts of the Scriptures. And so Jesus knows they've read this passage, but again, they've kind of missed. They've kind of missed it. In other words, don't you know that even in the Scriptures, that, that you are experts of the Scriptures, even in the Scriptures, this kind of thing has happened before. This is kind of the way God works. Now, the historical background of Psalm 118 is speaking of the, the height of Israel as a nation, the height of their prominence, the height of their blessing from God for following the Lord and honoring the Lord. Back in David's reign and Solomon's reign, the builders, the, the leaders of these other nations had given little thought to this little stone Israel, this little nation over there that really wasn't much to think of. But God did a great work. It, is, it was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. God did a marvelous work and that little stone became the cornerstone of all nations. And all nations looked to Israel and came to Israel and acknowledged Israel. And what Jesus is saying here is, is God's elevation of Israel from rejected stone to cornerstone is a picture of my rejection and consequent exaltation. I'm the rejected stone. Which means then that you are the builders. You have rejected me and, and the Lord is going to make me the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. The Lord is getting ready to do something marvelous right before our eyes with that who has been rejected, the one who is being rejected. Now, in the context of Jesus speaking to these leaders, there's only one person being rejected right here. Jesus. And he's teaching them God's, God's getting ready to do something marvelous with the very one that's going to be rejected. He's going to be the cornerstone. He's going to be the main one. He's going to be the exalted one. The rejected Nazarene will be raised to Christ supreme. In building terms, everything, everything depends on the cornerstone. Everything is aligned with the cornerstone. Everything falls in line. The building takes its shape according to the cornerstone. It, it holds the building in line. It holds it together. It makes, it makes the building. Jesus is saying, that's me. The one that is being thought of by the, by the elite, by the religious leaders as... Nothing more than a little stone. The Lord's getting ready to do a work for, from that rejected stone and he will be the cornerstone. Everything else will depend upon him. Everything else will align with him. He's the one that will make the building. Therefore, so after Jesus gives this verse to them, he says in verse the next verse, verse 43, Therefore, just as those wicked tenants face their just consequence, so will you. So he's saying just the ones who rejected the cornerstone, the builders, you're the builders. I'm the cornerstone. You're the tenants. I'm the son. 
just as those tenants, you said yourself, they deserve a miserable death. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits just as the, as the vineyard that they were trying so hard to connive and, and cheat and steal and have just as it's taken from them. It's going, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and given to a people who actually live as kingdom citizens, who actually live as a people of God, who actually produce kingdom fruit. Now, who are those people? We know the answer to that. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, composed of both Jew and Gentile. This kingdom is far greater than one ethnicity. It won't stop and it won't fail until it's filled with all ethnicities. A new people. Jesus says it's going to be given to a people producing its fruits. A new people. A different people. And then in verse 44, Jesus communicates again the consequence. Right in line with what they've already spoken would be the right thing to do. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, it all comes down to what you do with the sun. Those who fall on this stone, that is, I I understand Jesus to be saying here, those who fall on this stone, those who surrender their lives to this stone... Those who see the glory of the Son of God and see and feel their need of a Savior and give their lives to Him, those who fall on this stone, they will be broken to pieces. They will be broken of their self. They will be broken from the attachment to this world. They will be broken from the shackles of sin that enslave them. They will be broken from their own ways. They will be broken to pieces. But they will be placed on the cornerstone. They will be fitted for the kingdom of God. They will be the ones producing its fruits. Now let's look to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter talks about these stones sitting on this cornerstone. And he talks about there there being a, a people. And he talks about their producing of the fruit of the kingdom. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, that is Christ... As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. There it is again, rejected by men. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious. A cornerstone. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, drop down to verse 9. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people. There it is, that new people. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, the Lord is going to do a marvelous thing. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not mercy, but now you have mercy. Back to Matthew 21. That's the inevitable, inescapable consequences for those who fall on this stone. That's been rejected. But if this stone falls on you, if you reject Jesus as Savior, if you reject the Son, you don't face Him as Savior, you face Him as Judge, and the weight of having to pay for your own sin, your own rebellion, your own crime against the Lord, your own turning from God and turning to your way. The weight of having to pay for your own sin is crushing. It's crushing. You see, the results of of what we do with the Son are inevitable. Either Jesus pays for our sin by us giving our life to Him in faith, or we pay for our own sin. It all comes down to what you do with the Son. And then we see, tragically, sadly, for these religious leaders in verses 45 and 46, just a continued rejection. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. That's, that's a sharp point of insight, isn't it? They were not essentially blindly going into this with absolutely no truth before them. They perceived that he was talking about them. You see, my friends, they they knew. They knew. They knew he was God's son. They saw the miracles. They knew Jesus was pointing out their refusal and their rejection. And they knew they were rejecting the only one they've ever seen open blind eyes. But rather, rather than repent like David in 2 Samuel when confronted with his sin, with his rebellion... They just continued to refuse, to deny their need of forgiveness, to go their own way, chart their own course. They couldn't get rid of him at the moment, verse 46. There's nothing they could do at that moment, so they decide to wait until the opportunity arrives. In other words... They've really come to a place, they, they've come to a settled, determined life against the Lord. There's really no turning back now. They've committed to see this through. 
You know, sometimes believers, we can be just as spiritually stubborn as that. We, we know the Lord. God's given us new life in Christ. But as we've been growing in the Lord, the, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, godly people around us, we, we've been constantly hearing that voice of the things that weigh us down that we need to let go of, of the things that God's calling us to that we need to latch on to, and, and we just simply refuse to change. We refuse to grow. But even more dangerous than that is the unbelievers. And maybe there's someone here today who never has embraced Christ and trusted Christ, never has surrendered your life to that rejected stone, fallen on that stone and given him your all, broken to pieces of yourself and of this world and of sin for something far greater. What about you today, friend? You know in the depths of your heart that your life is not right. Even though you might have a church membership certificate, you might have a baptism certificate, but you know your life is not right. You, you know you're going, going your own way has not worked. You know sin has, has made a mess of your life. You know that you're guilty before God. You also know that Christ is the Savior. You know he can set you free. You know you can find new life in him. You can have eternal life in him. While Jesus has been talking to these leaders, God has been talking to you. What will you do with the Son? Come to him today. Don't delay another moment. Don't put it off another second. Don't refuse another time. Come to Christ today and be made new and be made right with God. Fall on the cornerstone. Fall on the cornerstone. Lest one day you find that it fall on you. Let's pray. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens, pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church, Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com to hear more sermons, read blogs, and learn more about the missions branch, P67 Missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.